The reading this evening is from John 12, verses 20 to 33. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Hannah. Should we pray? Father, I thank you that everything we could ever need or want is found in you. Love that is better than any kind of human love, grace that can cover all our sin. And Lord, I ask that you would help me as I speak and that you would strengthen us by the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, at this time of pandemic and war, it's easy to find ourselves daydreaming about the good times. I certainly found that it is. Uh, To find ourselves thinking about maybe our big life achievements, Perhaps we think back to times when we were less burdened and less weary. Maybe you reflect on an enjoyable memory with your family. Maybe you think about a really fun holiday. It might be getting an amazing job or maybe buying your first house, the birth of your first child. But it's natural, isn't it, when times are hard to find ourselves remembering the good times and thinking about our achievements in life. Well, in John chapter 12, Jesus tells us about what is soon to be the greatest and most fruitful moment of his life. In verse 23, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus is talking here about his painful betrayal, um, agonizing torture, and humiliating crucifixion. 
And he says, the hour has come. My greatest life achievement is coming to pass. And to say that this is unexpected and counterintuitive would be an understatement, wouldn't it? Because we choose things like career moments, family moments, holiday moments, relationship moments as our great moment. But Jesus chooses the most horrendous thing that will ever happen to him, his crucifixion, as his great moment. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So it's not just strange, is it? It's not just confusing. On the face of it, it's absolutely crazy. Theologian Fleming Rutledge puts it like this. The world's religions have certain traits in common, but until the gospel of Jesus Christ bursts upon the Mediterranean world, no one in the history of human imagination had conceived of such a thing as the worship of a crucified man. And that's why the title for today's message is God's fruit to us in and through death. God's fruit to us in and through death. Because all the way through John's gospel, uh, Jesus has been saying, my hour hasn't come yet. It's not my hour yet. And then we come to our reading this morning and suddenly his language shifts and he starts to say, the hour has come. Those mysterious words are going to have uh, flesh and blood put on them, literally, as uh, nails are nailed through Jesus' hands and feet, and as he's left hanging on a cross, struggling to breathe, dying a humiliating and slow and agonizing death. And you'd think that would be the end of things for a random would-be Messiah figure in the Roman Empire. But as we know, Christianity exploded onto the world and grew at such an astronomically fast rate that the church is still going and growing even today, 2,000 years later, and is forecast to well into 2050. But gosh, it's not what you would have expected, is it? Crucifixion was a punishment that the Romans reserved for the very, very worst criminals, it was designed with maximum humiliation and maximum pain um, in mind. And what's even more astonishing is that in our reading, Jesus um, tells us that he actually, in a way, wants to go and be tortured and killed. He's actually choosing to do it. So in verse 27, he says, My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, no. It was for this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus is deeply troubled, but ultimately he chooses this humiliating death. Why is that? It's a question of fruitfulness. Jesus claims here that his death is going to be fruitful and to produce something of infinite benefit to us so in verse 24, he says, Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus says there's something about his death that is going to be fruitful, that's going to produce something. His death is going to be like a seed and actually, unless the seed falls to the ground and dies, it can't produce anything. But if the seed falls to the ground and dies, it multiplies many times over. 
And so Jesus' death is going to be fruitful and it's going to multiply in some way. Like the intense pain of a mother in childbirth, followed by that kind of exuberant joy that a child is now in the world. Jesus' death is going to be unspeakably terrible, but it's going to produce something of infinite beauty and worth for us. But there's something else here as well that Jesus gets into. He says his death is going to be fruitful, yes, but as well as being fruitful, Jesus goes on to say that his death will also have power to defeat Satan. So in verse 31, he says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Almost as if he says, yes, my death is going to be productive, it's going to multiply, but this isn't just about kind of nice farming imagery. There is a real um, shift of power that's going to happen as a result of what I'm about to do. And the evil power that controls the world is going to be confronted, removed, and destroyed through his death. So his death is going to be productive, but it's also going to be super powerful. That's what he's saying. I like to think of it like this. Imagine you start your own company from nothing. So like, you know, on Dragon's Den or The Apprentice, something like that. And your company grows into a multi-billion pound um, empire with thousands of employees and swanky offices uh, and the works. And soon you begin to hear hear the rumours, though, The chief executive is mistreating your employees and mismanaging the business. There's a culture of fear, and he's even using company resources to corruptly increase his own wealth and influence. So finally, you decide the time has come to reclaim your company and to remove the abusive chief executive. And when Jesus says, the prince of this world will be driven out That's what he's saying, essentially. He's saying he is um, the owner of the company and that he doesn't want any of his people to be in any doubt that Satan has been completely defanged and is soon to be totally defunct as well. That war, disease and fear of death are absolutely certain to be destroyed on the basis of what Jesus is about to do. And there's tremendous comfort in knowing that before we move on, that God is not finished with this world. And scripture tells us plainly that there's a new creation and a new world that's coming, a world in which there is no pain and no death, no war, no tears and no Satan. So if you ever look out on the world and feel despair at the evil and chaos you see, I understand that, but remember this, It is only a matter of time until evil is destroyed forever. Jesus is quite clear about that. And the reason for all of that is his death and resurrection. So what does this passage say to you as you face maybe battle weariness and stress? What does this passage say to you as you look at a world which in many ways is convulsing and shaking with pain. Well, there's so much hope for us here because Jesus' suffering was actually his greatest victory. Jesus was like a seed that was thrown down into the dirt and left to die and yet astonishingly produced a field 
full of flourishing trees. That's you and I. And if that's the case, that means that our suffering, doesn't it, even if we can't see it, perhaps especially if we can't see it, can also have a purpose and a fruitfulness that God will work out in his own way. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He's setting up a principle here of how fruit comes into our life and how, pr- how fruit is produced. And he's saying that fruit comes to us in and through suffering and death. I don't know what your suffering is at the moment. It might be a scary diagnosis. It might be that you're really struggling with your mental health. It might be just kind of the bitter loneliness of bereavement and grief. But as Christians, we know that when Christ seemed utterly defeated, even when he submitted himself to floggings, beatings and insults, he was building up to that victory cry on the cross, it is finished. And he abolished death completely and was victorious over it when he rose from the dead. But coming back to the cross for a minute, this passage teaches us that there wasn't just a fruitfulness after the death or in spite of the death. There was fruitfulness in and through Jesus' death. I don't want you to miss that. It produced, verse 24, many seeds. Many seeds. Many broken people like you and I reconciled to God and washed in his blood and stood back on our feet with an amazing purpose, an individual purpose for our lives. If you're listening to me and you're exploring Christianity, there's no complicated formula to becoming a Christian. It really is about receiving the forgiveness of Jesus that he's made possible through the cross and saying, Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you that you're a God who hasn't stepped back from my suffering. And so please come into my life and make me new. Now, I started by talking about our big life achievements. And maybe God's word to you today is that what you're going through, your suffering, is actually going to be one day something that you can look back on and say, you know, it was incredibly difficult. It was incredibly painful. But like Jesus and by God's grace, it became the most fruitful time of my life. And in the meantime, you can trust that he's in control and that he knows what he's doing with your life. The cross teaches that our suffering is never wasted, that our suffering is never fruitless. And that actually, like Jesus, our suffering can become the basis of your ministry to and your connection with other people. Can I say that again? Because I think it's so important. Like Jesus, your suffering can become the basis of your ministry to and your connection with other people. It was true for Jesus, and how much more is it true for you and I who love and follow him? And so Jesus sets up a principle here of suffering service, that as he died for our salvation, so also he calls us to follow in his steps and to surrender to him completely. 
As he puts it in verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's saying that we follow that downward path of Jesus to death. There's a pattern there that we follow, not that we suffer for our sins. Jesus came to do that for us, but we follow him in dying to ourselves, in dying to our own agenda. And we find that this principle of suffering service is totally unexpectedly where life and joy is to be found. But how, I wonder, is God calling you and I to step into that downward path of Jesus to death? Maybe God is saying to you, I'm not interested in helping people through your strengths. I'm interested in connecting with people and helping people through your weakness. And that involves being open and real and authentic Because there's a big difference, isn't there? We all know this, between advising people and actually helping them. There's a big difference between impressing people and connecting with people, isn't there? I I wish I could stand before you and tell you that you will be most effective in God's hands when you are strong and together. But it's just not true. The greatest work God has ever done in my life has always and will always be through the moments of suffering, pain, and setbacks. And as we join with Jesus in that downward path to death, perhaps expecting nothing but risk and inconvenience and sacrifice, we find to our surprise and our joy that there's a blessing and an abundance and a fruitfulness waiting for us on the other side of the pain. So if God has brought you through some difficult stuff, don't be surprised if when the time is right, he calls you to be vulnerable and to use that experience to help other people. Now, that might not necessarily mean telling everyone what you've been through. Uh, We all know what it feels like, don't we, to be sort of emotionally vomited on. Um, That's a thing. We need wisdom in how we do this. But nevertheless, being real and authentic is so important. And it might just be about coming alongside people in a different way and being willing to take the risk of being vulnerable. Writer John Eldridge said, um, I don't trust a person who hasn't suffered. I don't trust a person who hasn't suffered. I think that's absolutely right. I don't either. And so as I finish, I want to um, finish with a question for you, really. And the question is this. What if the thing you feel most vulnerable about, most lonely about, most dark and confused about, is actually the very thing, the very thing that God in time will use to connect with and help the people around you. Have you considered that? Step into the weakness, step into the vulnerability, and you will see God do more than you could possibly imagine. Because God can always do far more with our weakness than he can with our strength. Shall we pray? 
Father, we thank you so much that because of Jesus' suffering, because of his hour, that when we face suffering, it can be infused with your presence and your hope and your grace. And as he calls us to follow in his steps to the cross, we ask for the strength of your Holy Spirit to not just to tolerate, but to embrace weakness and vulnerability, not for itself, but that you would shine out gloriously and beautifully out of our weakness and bring glory to Jesus. So show us how we can do that. Show us who we can help. In Jesus' name, amen.